You're listening to Breaking the Silence, a podcast by Reach 10, where we're creating a culture of courage, compassion, and connection to overcome the shame, silence, and fear that often surrounds topics such as sexuality and pornography. We're your hosts, Chriselle Simons and Creed Orm. Welcome back, listeners. We are so excited to be breaking the silence with Dr. Adam Moore, and we will be talking about how pornography can be both a problem and a symptom. And I am so excited to learn from Dr. Moore and to learn from his wisdom. He is the clinical director of Sela Health and operates mental health clinics in both Nevada and Utah and is really a phenomenal therapist and speaker. And Dr. Moore, introduce yourself to us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I've been a therapist since uh, technically 2005, if you count what I was uh, helping people in uh, while I was still in graduate school. So it's been a little while now. And we've been running our uh, clinics in Utah, Nevada since 2013. We're up to about 15, uh, soon to be, I think, 17 therapists right now and uh, helping a lot of people and really, really enjoying it. And um, I'm just happy to be here and uh, happy to help your audience out. So, Awesome. Thank you so much for being here to answer this question for us today. On this podcast, we have talked quite a bit about how pornography is a problem in some ways and also a symptom of underlying issues. And Adam is here with us to delve more into this. We're super lucky to have his knowledge based on on why this is and how it can help us to understand compulsive pornography use. So Adam, why would you say compulsive pornography use is both a problem and a symptom? And then also can you describe what both of those mean separately and looking at them together? Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's easy to understand uh, compulsive pornography use as a problem because for many people, it does create problems, whether it's issues at work uh, or school because they're getting behind on their tasks because they're obsessively turning to porn when they're when they're bored or, or, or uh, you know, whatever's going on. Uh, or some people end up with relationship problems uh, because, you know, for that relationship, it's outside of the, the commitment. They've said, hey, we're not doing this and uh, they continue to do it. And then, of course, as you know, sometimes people, because they feel particularly ashamed about what they're doing, they'll tend to hide it. And uh, that creates a trust issue in the relationship. So it's it's pretty easy for a lot of people to get behind the idea that it is a problem. And I think, you know, it's it's not too difficult to see it as a symptom of other underlying issues as well. Symptom meaning it's evidence that there's something else going on that's driving it. You know, uh, if it weren't a symptom, then we would have to say something like, well, people that turn to pornography, even though they don't want to, are just, I don't know, they're crazy or they've lost their mind or, or you know, sometimes people say rude derogatory things about people who struggle with this. But it's not hard to say, oh, you know what, let's say somebody's uh, very depressed and they are trying to find a way neurochemically to to amp up and manage those depressive symptoms or chronic boredom is a strong predictor of relapse into any type of compulsive problem so they just don't know how to manage boredom it's not too difficult to see pornography as not just being about hey i really want like perpetual sexual stimulation but i'm really using this in the same way that any of us would say we might use 
cookies or other forms of sugar to self-medicate when life isn't going great. You know, I think it's pretty easy to see that. The challenge is that people tend to sort of fall into one of those two camps. And I see this polarizing a lot in the mental health field among therapists or among recovery coaches or, you know, other sort of experts, people that are trying to explain pornography as, as a problem is that they tend to say, well, it's one or the other. And I've been doing this a long time and I've come to realize that if you really want to get at the heart of how to help people change, you have to see it as both because if you only do one or the other, you're missing half of the entire change process, the entire treatment approach. If you're like me, if you're a therapist. I really love this. And I definitely agree. Having worked in addiction recovery, and I primarily worked with addictions with alcohol and substance abuse and those kind of things. And I felt like we were more effective in treatment when we saw it as both a symptom and a problem. Mm -hmm. But often I worked with therapists that wanted to polarize, just like you're saying, one way or the other. And I felt like it left half of the picture out. Yeah. And it gives such a, a more holistic approach to mm-hmm. be able to say, okay, it is a problem. It's creating right. a huge problem in my life. Right. And what are these underlying issues or the, like what's driving it? And how can we nip that in the butt? Whether mm-hmm. it's a personality disorder, anxiety, mm-hmm. depression, boredom, like you mentioned, all of those different things. Right, right, right. Yeah, it, it, it's a big deal because people want simple solutions to problems, to complex problems. It's just sort of human nature. We want to be able to say, hey, if you just do this thing or these three things, then this will go away. But, yeah. uh, well, I wouldn't, wouldn't that have be so nice. That'd it would be, be so amazing. Nice, but it's but not reality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People ask me, is there, is there, you know, is there a pill I can take that makes this better? And, uh, you know, that would be sweet. Yeah, but yeah if you ever make one or find one, Adam, give it to me. So helpful. <laughs> you, I was going to say, if I ever make one, you'll probably catch me driving a Ferrari or something after that. <laughs> there you go. How can like a person who's maybe approaching this for the first time or has been battling this for a while, how can this paradigm shift the, their approach to recovery? Yeah. So typically when people first kind of come to this idea that, whoa, this is not just a habit that I need to kick or not even, you know, uh, a a bad habit that I've been doing for 20 years or whatever. And they're like, hey, you know what, this is actually a legitimate problem, whether they call it addiction or a compulsion or whatever the terminology they use. People will often then start to look around and say, all right, what's available out there? What are the resources, uh, you know, that I can get access to to help? And typically, uh, the first place they're going to land is if they don't end up in therapy first, they're going to land with recovery tools. And recovery tools are going to be typically uh, lined up with treating pornography as primarily a problem that needs to be solved, right? So they're going to be often really behavioral or sometimes mindset shift, right? So it might be accountability. It might be learning from the stories of other people who have who've gone through this process before. It might be 12-step, uh, you know, meetings. Uh, it's going to be setting bottom lines or boundaries with yourself to protect you from falling back into the, uh, you know, a relapse or a slip once you've experienced a trigger. So that's typically where they'll land, Um, which is not a bad place to start. Uh, That's actually in our treatment approach in our our clinics. 
after the education phase of treatment, helping people understand what's going on, they'll typically move into that really sort of behavioral focused area. The reason it's actually helpful to start there is because it's extremely difficult to develop any type of self-awareness, any type of like connecting the dots between childhood or trauma or whatever, if you're like four times a week turn into porn every time you feel sad, lonely, disappointed, upset, frustrated, or whatever, people just don't have the mental, emotional capacity to do that. So initially treating it as a problem actually does make a lot of sense. And so we can get a little bit of, of shift in behaviors, which then helps people's brains get a little bit more clear to be able to do some of that work. So I think that's a fine you know, place to start. You know, 12 steps, an interesting thing. We, we send in our office, we do send a lot of people to 12 step meetings for various reasons. And it works really well for some and for others, it's not their cup of tea and that's, that's okay. But, you know, 12 steps, interesting because it very much treats pornography like a problem, but it also looks at, uh, at the symptom being sort of a lack of higher power or lack of access to higher power. So that's its own little interesting dynamic there. But, you know, when, when people are just getting started, they're doing the accountability thing to get uh, supports. So they're not trying to do it alone. They're, they're reaching out when they're feeling triggered so that that doesn't lead them down that shame uh, and, and relapse cycle. And that's a great place to start. But eventually, and this is how we do it in our office, eventually there's going to come a point where sort of the, um, the novelty of change, the novelty of those interventions, the tools, if you will, starts to wear off and they're not going to permanently be as effective as they were in the beginning, which is where we start to shift people into this other phase of treatment, which is more about self-awareness, empathy for others, empathy for self. It's more about connecting the dots and really starting to dig into what's going on underneath that's driving this. So that would be more of the symptom approach. Correct. Right. That's exactly right. So it sounds like someone who's looking for recovery from compulsive pornography use should be careful to look at it from a, you know, obviously simple point of view. They should be looking at it from a comprehensive point of view as an ever perhaps shifting, changing Mm -hmm. um, condition, not something that you just do a couple things and you just keep doing those things and perfecting those two or three things and it's done. But over time, taking a look at all the different aspects of it, perspectives, uh, instead of just a, a few things. Yeah. How, how can people find out what they need at the time? Like you said, people, it's a great way to start, perhaps for some people, focusing on it as a problem so that they can focus on right. finally getting to the underlying issues. But what would you suggest people do do first yeah. going into recovery, I guess? Sure. It's really a question of like, how do you know what you don't know, right? Because nobody develops spontaneous self-awareness. Uh, it's, it's extremely rare, right? When I went to graduate school to become a therapist, I remember after about a year, I sat there and I thought, my brain has fundamentally shifted in a permanent way. I can never go back to looking at the world the same way that I used to. And I was simultaneously exhilarated and very disappointed <laughs> Because I thought, oh, I, I can't look at the world in the simple sort of young childlike terms that I wish the world was like this really simple way. So you really need that external outside feedback to develop self-awareness. It's really why people don't change in a vacuum, if you will. They, they don't change in isolation. 
you know, it's just like I, I'll have couples come in for marriage counseling and one person saying, yeah, I just don't think this marriage is going to work. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to end it. And I say, you know, that's your choice, but just FYI, if you haven't thought through this, whatever problems you have not resolved through with this person, they're just going to crop up in your next relationship. Most likely not a guarantee, but if you haven't worked through them, they'll just come right back up and bite you again. So you might, at least while you're still together, you might want to use this as an opportunity to use that mirror and really get some reflective uh, feedback from this person. So, and speaking earlier, and, and I will actually answer your question in a second. No, no, go, that's great. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned something extremely important earlier, and that is people will get in their heads that there's, say, three or four things that they can or should be doing. And if they do those three or four things, that ought to solve the problem, right? So they'll be like, all right, these are my tools and I'm going to use them. Then if they find that maybe it worked for a while and it stops working or it never really had the intended results, a lot of times people end up saying to themselves, I must be really broken. There's something wrong with me because these are the functional tools that everybody says should work. I'm doing them and it's not working. So maybe I need to do them more often or with more intent or whatever it is. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge trap because everybody is completely different. We have different personalities, different motivational styles. We have different things that we value. And so however the change process is, it really needs to be tailored to that individual person. And it may look really fundamentally different between two people. Uh, and that doesn't mean that one method is broken or wrong. It just means that it's, it just makes more sense for another person. So when people are getting to that space where they're saying, okay, I'm using the available tools that people have talked about. I've read the articles, I've watched the videos, I've listened to the podcast, I'm doing the tools and it's not really working or, or it's working, but I feel like I'm sort of slowing down. I'm styming, but how do I then develop enough self-awareness to be able to start looking at this uh, from a, the perspective of a symptom of what are my underlying drivers. So that's where you're going to get things like, you know, therapy or counseling where you get a professional that's sitting there, you know, doing things like tell me about your mother or whatever they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> look at this ink blot. What does this look like? Well, we never <laughs> see that. <laughs> I'm sure there are still some, some therapists that use those, but I, I don't know any of them. Uh, but you know, that type of thing, uh, it might be where uh, somebody might find uh, a recovery coach that has gone through this before and has some awareness of, of the symptomatic nature of it and be able to say, here's the five or six things I typically see other people dealing with that are driving it or they're reading stories. I mean, that's why I like to have, you know, people read some of the stories from, from other, you know, from recovery literature that's out there because they'll often find a piece of themselves um, in these stories or in, in the meetings that they go to, they're listening to other people going, oh, I'd never thought of that. So the absolute first thing they need to do is get with other people who know what they're talking about, however they know what they're talking about and listen carefully and try to connect the dots. That's, that's the starting point. I really love this. And Adam, I think you've done such a good job at helping explain that often our relationships and our experiences with other people are mirrors for us and are just opportunities for us to see ourselves. I think that's really profound for anyone who has a pulse and breathes and can be a really helpful tool to realize, wow, like what am I noticing about myself? What am I learning about myself in this relationship? If I just run away from this hard moment, likely it's going to come back, (laughs) 
right? And, and so what happens when, when we focus on just the problem or we focus on just the symptom? Right. Like we said before, I think you get sort of, you're halfway down the road. And it's interesting because I watch people, you know, focusing on that. My dad used to always say, uh, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail, you know? Uh, and, and I think what happens is whoever you're talking to, whatever their particular skill set is or their particular approach, that's likely where they're going to put their effort, right? So if their approach is, look, I've got the toolbox of 735 tools that are going to help you, they're going to really be treating it primarily like a problem to solve, right? Um, if you're talking to a therapist that's, you know, really sort of psychodynamic and wants to go back into your childhood and that kind of stuff, then they will most likely see it primarily as a symptom. And what's really interesting, you know, you hear this kind of coming from different angles, right? I've talked to therapists before. Uh, they say, yeah, I, I treat pornography, you know, use or whatever. And I, of course, I'm interested. I'm curious. I say, well, what's your approach? And I remember hearing one guy saying, we never talk about pornography at all in my therapy sessions. We, I go out of my way not to talk about it. We only talk about what the underlying issues are. I only talk about the depression. I only talk about the anxiety. I only talk about the loneliness, whatever it is. Because in that therapist's mind, it's like the symptom will immediately and automatically go away if you address the underlying issues. Well, that's not my experience as a therapist, right? My experience as a therapist is that if I'm treating the underlying issues, I'm now making the person, helping the person become more capable of confronting something that really is a self, self-perpetuating problem because pornography is really gives people a neurochemical experience that they're kind of like, hey, this is fantastic. I should get more of this, you know? And so uh, just because you've addressed your underlying depressive issues, that you know, doesn't mean you automatically have uh, any, anything that uh, was, you know, symptomatic from that mystically disappear. It really just gives you an edge or an opportunity now to confront things that, that you maybe not, you couldn't have before. Or then you'll hear other people saying things like, well, you know, if you just replace it with a different hobby or, you know, not that pornography is a hobby, but <laughs> replace it with a hobby or replace it with uh, something healthier and then it'll go away as if really you're just sort of filling a gap and you just need anything to put in there. Uh, again, treating it uh, as a really sort of two-dimensional thing or even, and, and this is a TED talk that I like. There's a famous TED talk with a guy, he's talking about rats and cocaine. And at the end he says, the opposite of addiction is connection. I mean, a lot of us have seen that. It's a great TED talk. But again, a lot of people walk away from that TED talk really oversimplifying that. And they, in their minds, they say, pornography is a symptom of a lack of human connection. If I or someone else who's struggling can just get legitimate human connection, suddenly the pornography goes away. And it's a great soundbite, you know, I've probably said in, in public speeches before things like that because in 50 minutes, that's all the, t- the time that I have and I need to get something across. But in reality, I know plenty of people who have great relationships with people around them, they have people that love them, their spouse, their children, their friends and family, but they're still using pornography against uh, their own values or ethics. And so just because, you know, just because you solve that one problem or, or it isn't a problem, again, doesn't mean that it goes away. So my biggest concern for people is that if they see it two-dimensionally like this, 
they'll say, uh-oh. I mean, inevitably people say, I must be broken because I'm not fitting the mold. And that's a big concern for me is I want people to, to look at the situation and say, no, I'm not broken. This is extremely complicated. I think that's, it sounds like it's really dangerous to have a mindset of just a problem or just a situation because we can run into a, a situation where we are blocked. Like, this is all I can do. This is it. If I can't do this, then there's no, there's no hope for me. That must be so dangerous for so many people. So thank you for clearly laying all that out for us, the differences there. Are there any other couple examples that you have to help our listeners really understand the mindset of whether or not they're in an either or situation of just a problem or just a symptom? Yeah. So I would say, first of all, if you're looking for a one size fits all magic bullet solution, you're probably in an either or mindset. If you're feeling so defeated that you're feeling hopeless, it means you probably haven't nuanced this thing enough to really look at it just like every other human problem, right? I mean, let me tell you something. After COVID hit and I never leave my house anymore, my weight has just been steadily rising. <laughs> every morning, it's just a little higher than the day before. And uh, I'm a mental health professional. I have a PhD. I'm aware of how calories work. I'm aware <laughs> of the fact that when I am stressed or bored, or am standing in a kitchen for seven hours straight or whatever it is, that I'm more likely to eat, you know, uh, but awareness doesn't necessarily create change. You know, uh, just because I know something doesn't mean that I'm going to, going to change. So I think it's important for people to, to realize that that's a nice starting point to be able to say, okay, symptom and problem. What's really crucial, I think, is to be able to look at this from the perspective of now what do I do that I understand this? And let me just give a few examples that people can walk away with today of now that I understand it's both a symptom and a problem, what changes could I make right now that might help? One thing that's really interesting is if you do have a mental health issue like anxiety, depression, trauma, uh, ADHD, personality disorder, whatever it is, then I recommend not only going to counseling, but potentially seeing either a psychiatrist or a medical doctor, you know, like a general practitioner that can prescribe medication because I've actually seen some pretty impressive results with people who get on, say, an antidepressant. And suddenly there's clarity in their mind, their moods are shifting, and their capacity to manage uh, the symptoms uh, improves dramatically. And lo and behold, it becomes much uh, less challenging to manage triggers, sexual triggers, and, and their relapses start to really decline. So, uh, you know, getting on some medication where necessary, obviously talking to a professional about that and, and, and looking at pros and cons. Um, in addition to therapy, I believe that really people need to treat uh, any type of compulsion, any type of, of issue that's really sticky like this with a, a multi-pronged approach. And I really believe that initially when you get started, you need to put a lot of energy into it. I have a metaphor that I use all the time that I'll use here. And that is getting out of the draw or the pull of a compulsion like this uh, is much like getting a space shuttle out of the gravitational pull of the earth. It's actually really difficult. <laughs> if you look at the science behind it, this is not an easy task. That escape velocity, as they call it, is 
really hard to pull off. They have to do some serious calculations and have some massive amounts of fuel. So when people are getting started, I recommend that they really put everything into it. I'll often tell my clients, this is going to be like a part-time job for a while, not forever, but it will in the beginning. So they may be attending some, you know, some 12 step groups. They may be going to counseling. They may be reading some literature. They may be reaching out regularly to an accountability person or a sponsor. They may be attending some kind of a coaching group or whatever it is and really putting their energy into it. Because what happens is that if you don't get enough velocity behind the change efforts, at some point you're going to burn out. And if you haven't made enough progress to feel like that worked, then people go, oh, that was pointless. I'm hopeless. That didn't work. And then they quit when in reality what they needed was more effort and energy up front. So if they're treating it like a problem, using the tools to shift behaviors, but also treating it like a symptom and really confronting those underlying issues all simultaneously, that's typically what gives people that velocity to, to move out of that space where they're just constantly being sucked back in. Uh, and yes, admittedly, it is a whole bunch of work. And uh, that's, that's the unfortunate news about anything that's worth anything in life is it's uh, <laughs> more work than most of us want to put in when we first look at it. So I really like this analogy because I think often, even when we are our tendency to be like, Oh, if I just do these three or like four steps, then like it's working for that person. It should work for me. Right. Then when that doesn't work, we get so discouraged and frustrated and be like, well, whatever, I'm broken. Like, of course it's working for that person because they've been working on it for years. Right. Like, of course it's working for your sponsor. <laughs> like, yeah. Like that's because he's been doing it for a long, long time. Right. And it's important to remember that when you are first trying to shift behavior, when you're first making a big change it takes major disruption it takes major effort to make those shifts so i really like that analogy of the rocket because it takes way more fuel to get that rocket off the ground than it takes to orbit to eight hundred thousand gallons of fuel i believe is the that's <laughs> so much fuel that's an insane amount of fuel yeah i'm glad you know that number because that's so crazy <laughs> I think Somebody will look it up and find out I'm wrong, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably about that much. <laughs> Give or take 100 gallons. <laughs> Thousand yeah. million gallons. I don't know. <laughs> I think this, this perspective is just so helpful to, to people. This comprehensive perspective. It's okay if your, your recovery doesn't look the same as somebody you admire. Take different uh, points of view, different perspectives bounce off of people, get self-awareness through people. Thank you so much for sharing these different aspects of looking at it. Uh, I think it's going to be so helpful for our listeners. Happy to, yeah, happy to help. Do you have any other resources or, or things that you'd like us to include in show notes for people to reach out to you if they want to connect with you or learn more sure. from you? Yeah, so I'll, I'll include a few websites that have some articles and some, some videos from workshops and other presentations I've done. And this is an interesting aside, but I am very busy, as you can imagine, with five kids and 20 employees oh, and yeah. whatnot. But I think people sort of look at that and they go, well, he's too busy, you know, and so so they don't reach out as often. But I get uh, phone calls from uh, people from all over the U.S. And if they're willing to wait a week or two, 
sometimes I promise that I, I get back to everybody that calls and I'm happy to spend a few minutes on the phone chatting answering uh, questions for people even if I can't provide you know counseling for them because they live out of the area where we're helping like I just want to you know try to be there and support people I'll send emails with the links to other resources so if there's somebody out there that's listening that legitimately is like I really need to ask this guy a question don't be shy I will call you back and we'll we'll talk Awesome. I really appreciate that about you. And, and I, and I, I know that that works because here we are talking with you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, before we completely wrap up, Adam, is there anything else that we missed or something that you wanted to say that we haven't said yet? The only thing that's, that's left that needs to be said is that, like I said earlier, anything that matters is worth putting a lot of effort into. And really, I like, Chriselle, the word that you use, disruption. I think that was such a great word. I will often say to my clients, change is always violent. It is always violent because we, by nature as human beings, do not want change. It's terrifying. It's, it's high risk. When, when we find a comfortable position, we sit in it until we become uncomfortable. And that's the only reason that we switch the, that seating position. So I think people need to know that sometimes this is a years long process, uh, just like any other change effort. And it's worth continuing to just put that effort into because just because you look at your life now and say, gosh, I'm not changing as quickly as I want or in the ways I want doesn't mean that change isn't happening. A lot of times change is only truly visible in the rear view mirror. Uh, and you've got to put some distance between you and the old version of self before you can really recognize that that's happened. And sometimes you can't even really see it without the aid of another person to say, Hey, do you remember when you were like this and you're not like this anymore? And that's a big deal. So getting that critical feedback, a little bit of time and distance between you, the old version of you and the new version can really help you stay motivated along a path that could be a lot longer than you think it should be awesome. than you want it to be <laughs> <laughs> yes well thank you so much adam we're so grateful for you we're so grateful for these analogies and these ideas that i think can really help us it's more complicated than just being a problem it's more complicated than just being a symptom it's both and how do i move forward with that knowledge thank you thank you thank you you're welcome we are so grateful for everyone that we've had on our podcast, and we especially love hearing stories from people our age, young people who are struggling or discovering who they are or are really um, seeking to overcome the struggles and the challenges of their past and, and what they're learning from that. So if you have been touched by this podcast or by someone's story and you want to share your story we would love to have you on our podcast and it can be anonymous. It can be non-anonymous if that's a word and um, whatever you would like, but please reach out to us, reach out to us at hello at reach 10.org. And we would love to hear and learn from you. Thank you for listening to breaking the silence by reach 10. Help us create a new culture of connection by sharing what you heard today with at least 10 people Please help us reach more young adults by going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reach 10 is a nonprofit. You can help support this podcast by donating on our website and following us on social media. We share these views to open the dialogue on these tough issues. 
We are not professionals, and the ideas shared on this podcast should not be taken as professional advice. The opinions and views that our hosts and guests share do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach 10, and we don't guarantee the accuracy of any statements you hear. Reach 10 is not responsible for your use of information heard on this podcast. We keep learning and invite you to join us as we build a more open, compassionate, and courageous culture.